Hello, and welcome to The Windwire, where industry leaders share the stories of transformative deals that shape their companies and careers. I'm Michael Katz, and we hope these stories will help empower you and your teams with inspiration and insights for success, no matter where you are on your journey. Let's get started. Our guest today is Kevin Haverty. Kevin brings a wealth of experience in revenue leadership. Currently, he serves as the Vice Chairman of Public Sector at ServiceNow. And prior to his current role, he was both Senior Advisor to the CEO and Chief Revenue Officer, serving as a worldwide revenue leader there for a decade. Before ServiceNow, Kevin was a VP of Sales at EMC and Data Domain. And in addition to his role at ServiceNow, Kevin also serves on the board of Sprinkler. Kevin is also a veteran of the US Army. We are thrilled to have him with us today. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, excited to talk today about the deal that really put you on the map. Now, before we get into the details, I want to set the scene here. You've now seen ServiceNow through several eras, starting there, I think, in late 2011. The deal you chose is in 2012, which I think is the same year that ServiceNow went public. Give me some context about ServiceNow as a company at the time and your role there. I know you'd spent time working under Frank Slootman at Data Domain before joining. Can you provide some background about how you found yourself there? What's happening in your career at the time? What's going on in the company? Yeah. So when I started at ServiceNow in December of 2011, the uh, company was just crossed over the $100 million in revenue barrier, which is a huge accomplishment, as you know. Uh, there were about 750 employees, and uh, the company was going through a pivot. It was going from a founder-led company, from Fred Luddy, um, our great founder, to Frank Slootman, who's uh, probably the best in the business as far as like emerging technology CEO who's built for scale. My personal situation was I was at EMC at the time, and I had my dream job. Um, I was vice president of sales, one of the products, the data domain product, and all the other backup and recovery services for the Americas. And, you know, I'm a Boston guy, Michael. I'm working for a Boston-based company as a vice president. I didn't think I'd ever leave. But when I saw Frank Slootman sign up at ServiceNow, a company I hadn't heard of at the time, I got very curious. I was thinking, there must be something special going on over there if Frank's taking the helm. And then a whole bunch of the executive leadership teams from Data Domain followed Frank over, like, very shortly after. Uh, David Schneider, uh, who was running worldwide sales, Mike Scarpelli, our CFO, uh, Dan McGee, product leader, just right down the line. And so I got this like major FOMO feeling like something special is going on at service now. Starting to get insecure if you're not going over there. Yeah, I was like, what is going on? Like, this is a great team. They're putting the band back together. I finally felt like I had to be part of it. I knew it was going to be something special. Interesting. And so you came over. They were making this transition from, to your point, founder-led to this new era. And what did that mean in terms of your personal focus, your role, how you were trying to grow the So David Schneider brought me in to run the Americas. Um, what they were looking for was uh, repeatable processes, consistent results, um, you know, the scale-up. Basically, the phase where you go from 100 million in sales to a billion and beyond. And the great thing was you know, ServiceNow had arrived. They had uh, good customers. They had a great product. Uh, they had you know, pockets of success, in particular, the big financials in New York, uh, a lot of the tech companies out on the West Coast. 
The UK was on fire with the big uh, financial firms, but the results were very inconsistent. Like most of the revenue was coming from the Bay Area in California and New York City, at least in the Americas. And so my job was to take the great things that ServiceNow had started to build out and then kind of try to get it to scale across in a balanced way, across industries, across major cities, uh, and get the kind of results that you need when you're going to be a public company where everybody's watching your revenues and your results every 90 days. Yeah, and wanting to see that you can sell to any industry as ServiceNow does today. You know, once you cross into the uh, IPO publicly traded world, um, they're looking for consistent results. They're looking for accuracy, the traditional raise and beat the number every single quarter, quarter in, quarter out, which we became known for. Uh, that takes like you know, some pretty good operational discipline and, and some great results. That's what we were there to build. Well, I guess no better time than now to start talking about the deal that really started to make that happen, right in your eyes. I think it would be great to get a little bit of background into who it was with, what the stakes were, and then, you know, feel free to jump into all the key moments along the way that made it so yeah. memorable. Yeah. I love this question, by the way, because you ask a sales guy to talk about a key win in their career and oof, uh, we could be talking for hours. Uh, I immediately started racking my brain and I came up with about six different deals uh, over the course of my career that I like hold near and dear to me that are memorable, that were, were maybe my glory days. But the reason I picked this one is because uh, for me personally, I felt the pressure. Um, and so here's the setup. I started at ServiceNow um, the first week of December, 2011. My first 30 days, I was really just trying to figure out who was who, get onboarded. I wasn't really carrying the number per se. I was more like shadowing Schneider and learning how the pricing were and, and the cadence of the company. But January 1st, it cut over and I owned the America's number. Uh, and so in enterprise software sales, Q1, um, seasonality wise is always a challenging quarter. Uh, and we had our sights on IPO. And so the company had a really nice run up to a hundred million, but we weren't there to stay at a hundred million. Like we were going for high growth and that predictability we were talking about. And so in March of Q1, uh, we were off to a slower start than we wanted. Uh, January and February were a little sleepy. Uh, and the number that we had called for the Americas was looking like it was elusive and uh, it was starting to feel like, oh man, you know, there's four weeks to go and we're less than 30% of the way home. And if these deals, I didn't have a track record with the team, so I didn't really know forecast accuracy, who could I count on, who was, who could walk their talk and who was, had happy years, like all those things were unknowns and so halfway through March. Uh, it was getting a little scary. And I remember very distinctly uh, one trip I made the third week of March. I flew out to Minnesota uh, to spend some time with the team there. And when I landed in Minnesota, I had a voicemail from Frank Slootman and Mike Scarpelli. And uh, they wanted to know why I had just dropped my commit. A couple million bucks with two weeks to go in the quarter. And my immediate thought was, man, I should have stayed at EMC. I mean... I had a team there. I had predictability. I had a mature product. Wow. Now here I am. And there's all this risk and unknown and new early company challenges. I was like dying. And so I called them back. We talked it through. Uh, I felt like we got to find a way to deliver this quarter. So 
that leads me to, uh, to the deal that I want to talk about with you. Yeah, that's great. And I think probably a lot of people can put themselves in your shoes in terms of no track record. I don't care if you're a rep, you're a leader, whatever it might be, that first quarter, second quarter, whatever it is, you lose all your reputation. And actually, you almost have more to lose sometimes by missing there. You're losing your luster, essentially. I so felt like I had to prove myself. I've read a lot since about imposter syndrome, but like imposter syndrome was like beating the hell out of me at that point. And I was like, Oh my God, like I got to find a way to make this work so I can, I have to build my service now reputation. Oh, everything else didn't matter at that point. So that was a internal pressure that I was feeling. And there was also a fair amount of external pressure too, that was pressing on. So sometimes sure brings out the best in you oh. and it's your time on the big stage uh, and you got to deliver. So anyway, the deal that, uh, that I love to talk about uh, with that setup is a large pharmaceutical company uh, in New Jersey. Uh, and it wasn't even forecasted for the quarter. Uh, it was a Q2 deal, wasn't on the radar. Uh, the team had done a fantastic job of positioning the company, uh, getting this company to really want to have service now and making sure that we were in position, we had the quote unquote technical win. They wanted to do business with us, uh, but we had to come to terms and uh, that's not so easy. And so the team um, reached out to me and said, we get this long shot. We could potentially pull this deal in. And at the time, this thing was forecasted at about $750,000, which was a big deal at the time for ServiceNow, annual net new ACV. And they weren't doing business with us at all. So it would have been a new logo. And I was like, okay, how can I help? And they said, they're saying that if we can cut the right deal, they're willing to do a deal with us in Q1. Uh, and uh, we want to make a run at it. Which is the next two weeks. At right? this point, Basically. we're into the last week. This is like Monday yeah. of the last week and we got five days left in the quarter. And so we talked about it and we said, okay, let's do it. I'm coming down. Uh, I live in Boston. I went down to Jersey. I came down on a Tuesday night, went to dinner and we showed up uh, first thing bright and early Wednesday morning. And this was a cool one. And I got to tip my cap to uh, David Schneider because he fed me this idea. He said, you should start the meeting by saying that if they're not ready to do a deal, you're going to leave. And so it was kind of a bold way to start a meeting, um, but that's what I did. I said, hey, listen, I run the Americas. I could be anywhere right now. We have 72 hours to go in the quarter and I'm here. Uh, and I'm here because you guys said you're ready to do a deal. Uh, so if that's not the case, that's fine. Your timing's our timing. We'll pick this back up in April. But if you're sincere about wanting to get something done here, then I'm here to, uh, to make it happen. And so they responded in the affirmatives. I felt like that was a great way to set the stage. Like you know, we're not here fooling around. If you guys are ready to go, we're ready to go. But if you're not, goodbye. And so that was a good qualifying question to start the conversation. Yeah, well, it's definitely one that I think most people would probably not have uh, the moxie to necessarily do in that first statement. Yeah, in sales is a fine line between being arrogant and being confident. And people love confidence and they hate arrogance. And so kind of positioned it in a way where, hey, I'm a professional and this is what I'm here to do. And that's why the part about your timings, your timing, our timing, right? So like, if we want to talk about this in April, that's fine. So I, I didn't want to be like the jerky boy with the hard clothes, but also wanted to make sure that they understood we were not going to spend any time on this if it wasn't possible. So played out great. Yeah. And you're not saying you're never willing to do it or you're just going to walk out yeah. forever. 
Yeah. And so then how did it proceed from there? What were some of the key moments that got you to close? In those yeah. So what was really great about Wednesday uh, was we were in their office and they had a conference room and it was myself. It was the sales manager, John Meyer, who's one of the greatest. He's still with us uh, in New York. Uh, one of our most senior tenured uh, people in the sales organization and Bill Schofel, uh, who's now at Snowflake. Uh, Bill's a great salesperson and sales leader now, but at the time he was the rep. And John and Bill um, knew what they were doing. They were you know, two of the most successful people in the sales organization at ServiceNow at the time. And they're the guys who teed this deal up. So I was the one in there trying to help, but it was really all that. They were the ones who got this thing teed up. I was just trying to push it over the line. So it was the three of us. And then it was uh, senior people from the IT organization at this pharma company. And then some of their resources, like a lawyer and a contracts person. So we were, you know, there were probably about eight to 10 of us sitting around this table. And then they gave us our own little breakout room right down the hall. And then they had their breakout room. And so throughout the course of the day, we had these kind of timeouts. And then we went and huddled in our little breakout room. We strategized. We called back to corporate in Santa Clara or San Diego in those days for us. And we had uh, the company at the ready to, to try to hammer out this deal. And then when things would come up, we were just marching through uh, the different items. We would just call in to corporate, get the senior people on the line and hammer out the decisions in real time. So this was probably like a process that under normal circumstances takes about six weeks and we compressed it into a day. Uh, and so that, that was pretty cool. It was a long day, by the way. We went late into the night. We probably walked out of their office at 10 p.m. And so lots of breaks. We actually built a really great rapport with the customer over the course of the day because we were, even though we were coming at it from different sides, we were both trying to get the same thing. They needed our stuff. They wanted to get a deal that worked for them. And we needed the deal. And we wanted to make sure that there was a the win-win that you hear about. It was all about that. Well, it's fun. The fact that you've had these breakout rooms, it's almost like there's a mutual respect and understanding that this is truly a negotiation where there are two sides that are acknowledging, hey, we got to yeah. go huddle. And come we got to go huddle. And uh, there was a part of me that wanted to sweep our breakout room and make sure it wasn't bugged or anything, but I knew they wouldn't go there. These were good, reputable people. But uh, a little bit about the deal, uh, which kind of made it cool. I, I told you it was like a $750,000 deal. They were asking for a lot. They were leveraging their brand. They wanted very good terms and all these things. And so we were thinking like, all right, well, look, this is a big company. They spend a lot of money they're asking for a lot. So let's focus on how do we make it bigger for them and for us uh, and make it better for both. So we came back and we were like, you know what? We're talking about 750,000. You're looking for a lot of gives. Why don't we, why don't we do something a little bigger. Like they were thinking about starting in this phase and then expanding as they went. So we said, let's bring some of that expansion forward a little. And we got the initial uh, deal up to 1.2 million, uh, but it included a lot more. Now there was no worry that this company would or couldn't consume that much. Uh, they had an appetite for even more. ServiceNow wasn't the obvious choice in March of 2012, so it was still perceived to be a little risky. We didn't have a lot of million-dollar deals. In fact, getting a new logo for over a million dollars was unheard of in those days. 
Um, it was usually start small and expand, prove yourself as you go and grow and grow and grow. So we certainly had a fair amount of customers spending more than a million dollars, but very rare to land a new logo at that amount. And so the angle we took, Michael, because their biggest concern was, what if this project fails? Like, what if we don't get into production? Then we're going to be obligated to spend this money, and that's a no-go with us. And so we came up with this creative angle where we said, okay, you need this to get into production. We need it at 1.2 million. Here's what we'll do. We agreed on a reasonable amount of time to get into production, whatever it was, six months, nine months. And we said, if you're not in production by that date, we're going to move the price point down from 1.2 million to 800,000. And so we'll be in kind of a quote unquote penalty phase. And then we're going to work like heck to get out of that penalty phase because we'll want the revenue to go back up. And you're going to be the beneficiary of that. And honestly, we're going to make sure we never get into that situation because it's going to cost us money. And so we put our money where our mouth was and we signed up for walking away from a fair amount of revenue if we didn't deliver because we knew we had the right technology. We knew we could deliver and we knew it was going to work. So that's how we structured it. We raised it up to 1.2 million. We locked it in for a certain amount of time. And then we signed up to say, Hey, it's going to come down uh, if we're not walking our talk, uh, which was a little bit of risk that we were willing to take. And they were too. So that's, that was the breakthrough moment where they were thinking like, okay, service now means business. We like this structure. Let's go. And coming to terms on the business part of it, I believe took us from 8 a.m. till about noon. And we took our little lunch break. And then, uh, then it was like rolling up the sleeves and hammering through the, the MSA, the master service agreement, you know, with all the T's and C's and everything that goes with it. So that's the part that felt like six weeks worth of work compressed into, into six hours. I'm sure the legal team. The, the weight of that one even more than you could yeah. I think we all know there's these specific things you remember as part of any deal. It's right? something that went horribly wrong, some coincidence, some funny moment. You know, I know this was so compressed, but are there any <laughs> other interesting or memorable conversations on your side internally in those huddles or with the customer? That yeah, you yeah, I remember a funny and embarrassing part of the deal. And then the final ending of it was kind of funny too, I thought. So Remember I told you we were having these huddles in our breakout rooms and then we were having the group meetings with the larger team. And at one point we were on with somebody back at corporate who thought we were in like the little private huddle, didn't realize we were actually sitting at the big table with the customer and started talking about some internal laundry that you wouldn't want to air in front of a customer. Uh, and <laughs> we had to go like, oh, oh, oh time out, sorry. We're here with the customer, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. <laughs> it was really embarrassing for everybody, but it was like, it had to be said because it was like somebody who was like talking about some problem that we had somewhere else that was really not the type of thing that you would be discussing in a meeting with a customer. So uh, we recovered from that. Um, that stuff happens sometimes. It's probably our fault for not being clear in the beginning of it, introducing everybody, a lesson learned. But then the other... Funny thing was, I told you, we walked out of there at 10 PM and I was staying in Manhattan. So by the time you get into Manhattan, it was probably 11, 1130 at night and uh, we were done. It wasn't inked yet, but like we had come to terms on everything. And then we had Thursday and Friday to clean up the paperwork, get all the signatures and the approval. So 
Anyway, I got back to the hotel. It was too late to go out with the team. Everybody was going home. I went up to my hotel room and I figured to celebrate, I'd open up the mini bar and have a beer. And I cracked open the beer. I took a sip. I laid down and the next thing I know, I woke up, it was the next morning at 6.30 and uh, my 12 ounce beer was sitting on the nightstand with 11 ounces still in it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, a heck of a celebration we had there. <laughs> yeah, that is so funny. And yeah, regarding the mistake you made of talking about internal laundry, I think it's so funny you realize through these things that everyone is human on both sides. So it almost actually humanizes you a little bit more to be like, oh yeah, I've done that before. Yeah, that was part of the rapport that we built. At certain phases, we were all a little punch drunk. And then there were times when we had to like really snap out of it and focus and go. But I remember saying at the time, this is one I won't soon forget. And here I am um, 11 years later talking about it. So I guess I didn't forget. And uh, it was great. But what it did uh, for the company, number one was it got us to the number uh, that I had just backed off of the week before. Um, so I regret ever backing off the number. I should have kept my commit where it was. Uh, that's the lesson there. Have some confidence. Uh, and uh, we delivered uh, the number that we were looking for. And uh, the consequences of it were our CFO was waiting for a good Q1 um, and the confidence to be able to hit the button in April to submit the paperwork for the S1 filing, um, which he did. And then we had our IPO in June of 2012, and it was a successful IPO, and it's been up and to the right ever since. Um, now, I'm not saying the company wouldn't have done it or with or without this deal, but it, it helped. And that confidence that we were looking for and our ability to walk our talk as a company. And for me, uh, it was great because I got my sea legs. Uh, I think I built a good rapport with the team in the field. And they felt that I was a leader worthy of bringing into a big situation. Just the last question on the deal. You mentioned a lot of different things, you know, how you got the deal size up, how you compressed something that should take six weeks into a day, how you built rapport. Is there anything that you learned that you either avoided going forward or took into the future that you think maybe others could also learn from? Yeah, I, th I think what helped was I came in from the outside with a different perspective and I was used to bigger deals. My job at EMC, we were a bigger company. We routinely did big deals. So there was nothing intimidating about a $1.2 million deal. The people who had been at ServiceNow on the $0 to $100 million journey were, you know, making things bigger and bigger, right? And by the way, 1.2 million in hindsight is really small. So when you look at the value that you bring with this type of technology and the money that gets spent, by large enterprises who consume that value or consume that technology and get that value. No, it's just an order of magnitude bigger than that. So it's almost like uh, have the confidence to go in and you never want to gouge anybody. You always want to make sure you're charging the appropriate price and then over delivering the value that you promised. Uh, but it's just funny that you got to believe first yourself and then oh, your confidence will extend to the customer. Uh, what felt and looked huge to us at the time, really wasn't so huge. So I guess the lesson learned is um, the value of a new person coming in with a new perspective is always helpful. Dreaming big, as our current CEO, Bill McDermott, likes to say. Uh, you know, in hindsight, when I thought I was dreaming big, um, I actually wasn't even dreaming big enough. So we all need to think about the art of the possible more and dream bigger and kind of go for it. And what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Somebody's going to say no, 
and uh, you know, you adjust. So, you know, those kind of lessons hit you throughout your career in business where uh, I think you got to have the right frame of mind uh, about things. You got to stay confident. You got to stay the course and nobody bets a thousand, but if you do it right, you're just going to be that much more successful as you go. And obviously you've seen the bar raise since then. So it's been a journey. Yeah. But uh, just to close out here, I wanted to get your higher level perspective on a couple of different things, given your years in the industry and expertise. All these are really interesting times for a lot of folks where everyone is scrambling for different ideas and you know, ways to improve. So the first one I wanted to ask is, where do you think people are getting it wrong right now? What idea or point of view that you hear a lot from revenue leaders or founders do you think is either wrong or think is something that maybe people are too focused on right now? Well, I think a lot of this has played out. Throwing bodies at the problem uh, is the wrong uh, way to go. There's this theory where you just flood the market and then may the strongest survive. And, you, know, you call up people who are failing and that's how you scale a sales organization. Uh, I never really subscribed to that. That's a little chaotic to me. Now, being aggressive, absolutely. But I think you got to be a little bit uh, strategic and specific about how you're going to be aggressive. So what, what I saw that worked, Michael, was, hey, we're going to open a market. We're going to put some people there. And then when we see some results there, then we're going to go in bigger. Uh, so I've seen companies and I've seen approaches where they just throw a bunch of resources at a market. They're not enabled. Or they're not really supported. And it's not a good experience for anybody. And so then you get a whole bunch of people who turn over whether they quit out of frustration or you have to let them go because you've overspent. Uh, and it's too chaotic. It hurts a lot of people. And uh, in the end, um, it's not worth all the broken glass that happens. So now with all the layoffs that have happened over the last few months, I think everybody in the market's changed. The, the market no longer rewards growth at all costs. The market now rewards profitable growth. And so I think everybody is being a little bit more sober about how we're scaling our companies and how we're going after markets. And as a sales leader, your job is to put people in positions where they can win, you know, where they can be successful. And I don't know a single sales who, who wants any of his people to fail. You want to enable them right. You want to put them on the right market with the right solution and get the great results for the benefit of your customer and the benefit of yourselves. I'm glad that the, maybe the chaos is behind us and maybe we've all learned a lesson. And then going forward, uh, we'll try to set people up for success uh, more and maybe not be uh, so careless about just setting people up uh, with a high percentage chance that they're going to fail. Doesn't mean we're not going to be aggressive, right? Doesn't mean we're not going to swing for fences uh, when it's appropriate to. But there's a difference between being aggressive and being reckless. Yeah, and it's tempting. Of course, it's the easy solution. And the last question here is, it's obviously a challenging and uncertain time for a lot of folks. What do you think most leaders, builders, and sellers have lost perspective on that they should be reminded of right now? What are people missing? That's hard to give just one answer to, but I think uh, perspective is important. Like we've been, from a business standpoint, we've been on a run and especially in technology for so long uh, where things have been going up and to the right for over a decade. Um, there hasn't been a real big recession to hit tech too bad in a long, long time. Uh, even though uh, we have some economic crosswinds right now, 
on the big scheme of things, we're actually not in a bad place. People are still digitally transforming their businesses. People are still leveraging technology. I feel like in this industry, we're in a privileged position. Um, yeah, maybe it's not as freewheeling as it was 24 months ago. Uh, we're actually not in such a bad spot. Now, that might not land real great for somebody who just was on the receiving end of a layoff. Uh, but even if you're uh, on the receiving end of a layoff, you're in the right space for the long game. So stay at it. We all have setbacks. I've had plenty. Uh, and uh, you see those graphics about people think that success looks like a straight line up and to the right. And it really looks like a lot of chaos. Some of us are in the midst of that chaos right now. So I would say stay confident in the long game and keep your perspective that in the big scheme of things, we're still in a good spot. Now, you have to be in a position where you know, you're providing something valuable to your customer. You have to be able to articulate that and you have to be able to really deliver it. Yeah. Don't fall for hype, especially when times like this come. They get very careful about doing good cost justifications and really scrutinize where the spend's gonna be. But these companies have to keep running, right? They still have a lot of employees. They still have a lot of numbers to deliver. So even if they're down a little bit, they still got to run efficiently. So stay in the game. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Windwire. We hope you enjoyed the journey with Kevin Haverty and can't wait to keep the stories coming. If you liked today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could rate us and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps others discover the show and join our growing community. We'd also love to connect with you. My contact info is in the show notes, including our show email, winwirepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback and find out more about who your dream guests are. You can see all episodes at our website, thewinwire.com, and in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and this is The Winwire.